Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane. In this month's podcast, we're going to hear from Clifford Jack, who is a diagnostic radiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester in the United States. He is one of the authors of a research article in the January 2016 issue of The Lancet Neurology, which investigates the potential of biomarkers to identify preclinical dementia. This is an exciting, interesting, evolving, and sometimes complex field. And I began by asking Professor Jack to outline the main aims of his research. This paper is actually the third in a series of papers where we've taken a little bit different approach from you know, what has to looking at biomarkers. Historically in the literature, what you see is many papers that examine different clinical groups, comparing biomarkers amongst different clinical groups, uh, examining a given clinical group with, say, different genotypes like apolipoprotein E carriers versus non-carriers, comparing biomarkers in those groups, but controlling for any age differences that might exist between the relevant groups, or looking at the continuous relationship between biomarkers and, say, cognition, but again, controlling for age. So this paper, as well as the others' papers in this series from the Mayo Clinic like this, have taken a different approach, and that is to, instead of controlling for age, or let's say uh, ignoring age, the idea is that if you think about dementia, if you think about cognitive impairment in elderly people, really the prime mover of Alzheimer's disease, the prime mover of most neurodegenerative diseases found in elderly people is age. It's time. And so rather than control for age and sort of ignore its effect or correct for its effect, we actually want to directly look for the effect of age. So that's what this paper was designed to do. And if one thinks about Alzheimer's disease, in particular Alzheimer's dementia, early on, really one of the most vexing problems in clinical medicine is this notion of where in an individual patient does that patient depart from the trajectory that you might call normal or typical aging into the trajectory uh, that leads ultimately to dementia. What distinguishes or what is... Yes, yeah, so what's the separation? What's, what's the overlap and what isn't the overlap, I guess? Exactly. The question then becomes, how do you study that? And really the only feasible way that I, I think you can look at that is really to look at the effect of age as the primary variable of interest, if you will. And that's what we, one of the things that we did here. And then as far as biomarkers are concerned... Yes, absolutely. We, yeah, sorry, I'll jump in with a, with a question here because the clear thing here is about biomarkers, isn't it? And you were using amyloid dep deposition and neurodegeneration to classify people uh, in this study. Is that right? Exactly. Really in both the International Working Group clinical criteria and also the National Institute on Aging-Alzheimer's Association, the abbreviation is NIAA criteria, biomarkers are obviously used and by, in, in both of these criteria, modern criteria for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in all of its clinical stages. And biomarkers are lumped into groups, if you will. Those one class if you, is biomarkers of all of uh, brain uh, amyloidosis, beta amyloidosis, that is amyloid plaques, and those biomarkers are either low CSFA beta 42 or a positive or abnormal amyloid PET scan. And then there are biomarkers of tau-related neurodegeneration, 
in Alzheimer's disease, most of the neurodegeneration is felt to be due to uh, be related uh, to tau, hence the, the notion of tau-related neurodegeneration. And those biomarkers would be direct markers of tau, CSF tau, high CSF tau, tau PET, which is a brand new biomarker, and then, then also direct measures of neuronal injury or neurodegeneration, which would be brain atrophy on MRI, or decreased metabolism on FDG PET. In our study, we didn't have cerebrospinal fluid, nor did we have uh, tau PET. We were able to classify every subject as amyloid positive or negative, and this was done on the basis of amyloid PET. That's on the basis of imaging then, yeah, from the, from yeah. the scans, yeah. So our study was entirely based on brain imaging. And so subjects were classified as amyloid positive or negative on the basis of amyloid PET, specifically PIB, Pittsburgh Compound B. And each subject was classified as neurodegeneration positive or negative on the basis of both FDG and MRI. And the way we did this was we, we have specific topographic uh, measures of amyloid FDG metabolism and atrophy on MRI, which correspond to AD-like topographic patterns. And what we did was we looked at the distribution of those values in a group of 75 clinically diagnosed Alzheimer's patients. These are independent from this study. They were like a comparison group then, were they? Because your main cohort were, were, were healthy people with, without uh, cognitive uh, impairment, is that right, or neurodegeneration? Well, actually, our uh, this cohort here were, were by definition, non-demented. So they were a mix of cognitively normal and mild cognitive impairment, but by definition they were non-demented people. In order to identify the criteria that we use to label each person amyloid positive negative or neurodegeneration positive negative, this independent reference group of Alzheimer's subjects was used. And what we did was we took the most normal 10th percentile of that Alzheimer's distribution as the cut point for each of our measures. If a subject was abnormal, hit the, hit the 10th percentile or greater of the Alzheimer's distribution on amyloid PET, they were labeled amyloid positive. And if they hit the tenth, lowest 10th percentile of the Alzheimer's distribution on either FDG PET or uh, MRI, then they were labeled neurodegeneration positive. So every subject then fell into one of four categories, amyloid positive, amyloid negative, neurodegeneration negative, amyloid positive, neurodegeneration negative, amyloid negative, neurodegeneration positive, or so-called SNAP, suspected non-Alzheimer's pathophysiology, and the last being amyloid positive and neurodegeneration positive. This is interesting, isn't it? Because just about 14 months ago, you published a study in the Lancet Neurology, which basically said that people could have normal cognitive function whilst at the same time having some abnormalities upon imaging. So how does this study advance us on, on what we were talking about just over a year ago? In the paper published in Lancet last year, we examined the prevalence of these four different possible biomarker states that we just described. In um, the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging, which is a population-based sample, these are subjects who are representative of the general population. That group was, class all subjects were classified as cognitively normal. And what we found was, but, uh, was dramatic changes in the prevalence of these biomarker states as people age. 
at age 50, almost everyone in the sample was negative-negative, amyloid-negative, neurodegeneration-negative. By the time people reached the mid to late 80s, very few subjects actually were in that category, and most subjects had moved into one or the other abnormal biomarker states. And we looked at that data, and we hypothesized that what was happening in individual subjects was that they were transitioning from less abnormal to more abnormal biomarker states while remaining cognitively normal. It's a reasonable, I think, you know, hypothesis, and I think it's a pretty well-informed conjecture, but still it was a conjecture because the previous study was all cross-sectional. We had no longitudinal imaging measures. We had no longitudinal clinical or cognitive um, data incorporated into that manuscript. And so the purpose of the present manuscript there is really to directly measure these transition rates and to test the hypothesis that we had proposed in the last paper, which is that these changes in cross-sectional prevalence can be directly attributed to individual transitions from one biomarker, from less to more abnormal biomarker states. Why is this important? How does this advance our knowledge about dementia and the understanding of dementia risk in the aging brain? Measures of rates are a direct measure of the underlying biologic processes. So if you measure a rate, you're actually measuring the real bi biology that's happening in individual people. Prevalences and contradistinction really are the consequences of these uh, underlying biologic processes. Methodologically, what do you think are the strengths and limitations of this current approach? One of the big strengths is, is I, I think, the thing that I, the aspect that I started out with, which is the, the idea that historically most studies have sort of compared clinical groups or, or looked at one variable versus another controlling for the effects of age. But in reality, I'm not saying it's misguided. We've obviously published many, many papers over the years taking that approach. But if you stop and think about it, age is really the, seems to be the driver of age or passage of time. It seems to be the driver of many, if not most, things that go wrong with the brain, both pathologically and cognitively, in old age. This isn't a way to look directly at the effect uh, of age. So I think in that respect, this paper provides, as well as the others, other papers in the series that we've been working on, provides a different insight into relationships between biomarkers, which really are just proxies for the underlying pathophysiology in the brain and cognition, different insight from the, a large bulk of the published literature. Another big strength, I think, is the modeling, the method uh, that the modeling uh, employed. And so what we employed was a multi-state Markov model. And this algorithm was implemented by our statisticians. The key strengths that this algorithm allowed us to exploit are the fact that we accounted for all possible outcomes in our model. So we have a population-based sample, and we measured a number of different rates, rates of transition to different biomarker states while subjects remain non-demented, rates of transition from non-demented to dementia, and then rates of transition to death. Anytime you model what's happening in late life, the competing risk of death 
is actually extremely important. So all this was incorporated in our model. The way the model is designed, so we're measuring many, many different rates. We're measuring many possible rates at every age. You might imagine that even though we had a very large sample size, uh, we were underpowered to accurately measure a lot of these rates. But the beauty of the model is that everything is in interdependent. So we're able to borrow statistical strength from well-powered rate estimates to support <clears throat> less well-powered uh, estimates. Every study has a weakness, and even though I've just gone through the statistical strengths of our study, the reality is that even with this, these statistical strengths and with the very large sample size, we're still inadequately powered to examine, I think, some pretty interesting questions like age-specific sex and apolipoprotein E effects. Obviously, these are things that we've looked at in the past and are very relevant to the study of the aging brain, but we really didn't uh, have enough power to examine those effects, and so we didn't include those in this particular analysis. That'll have to wait for uh, some sometime in the future when we have adequate uh, larger sample size. How can these data uh, from this modeling study be used to influence future research, particularly clinical trials, which is the obvious kind of gold standard area that we'd like to be operating in in this field? Clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease are moving toward, I won't say they're moving away from people who already are demented, but definitely there's a notion that clinical trials ought to be implemented earlier in the disease process with the idea that the best possible way to treat Alzheimer's disease, in fact, is prevention of dementia, prevention of clinical symptoms, rather than trying to treat people who have already achieved full dementia. So clinical trials are moving earlier and earlier into the uh, early symptomatic and even the pre-symptomatic or preclinical phase. And what we've shown in this data here is that progression to dementia requires that subjects have neurodegeneration at baseline. This will have, I think, a big impact on clinical trials that enroll particularly clinically normal subjects on the basis of a positive amyloid biomarker, but that have clinical endpoints. And the implication here is that if amyloid positivity is required for entry into the clinical trial, you really need to have people who are both amyloid positive and neurodegeneration positive if you hope to reach or see clinical change endpoints in the typical short period of follow-up time that you have in clinical trials. Another, I think, very important aspect, for, particularly for clinical trials, is that every transition rate that we looked at accelerated with age. There was one exception that accelerated and, and then plateaued or declined with age, but every other rate accelerated with, with age. And so if rate of change on imaging is the endpoint in a clinical trial, then the age range of people enrolled has a huge effect on, on those endpoints. the outcomes mm. and the ability to power a study. And really, unless you've examined age as a specific variable of interest, you wouldn't appreciate the fact that these rates are all accelerating with age. Fascinating study, Professor Jack, and difficult question with a complex study like this, but in a nutshell, what would your take-home message briefly be, please, to neurologists wanting to extract the, the kernel from this study? What's the main message from this study? 
I think the main message is that, unfortunately, aging is not very kind to the brain. And all of these rates of transition to worse biomarker states and to worse clinical states, including death, don't just increase with age. Actually, they, the rates accelerate. So you can almost envision aging as an acceleration towards worse clinical and uh, biomarker states. It's sort of a depressing view of aging. That's what our data shows. Another, I think, important point is that uh, our data show that neurodegeneration is the direct temporal precursor to dementia, not isolated amyloidosis. And this supports the concept that for individuals in the Alzheimer's disease pathway, brain amyloidosis is necessary, but it's not sufficient to produce... It's not the only factor at play here, is it? That's the point. Yes, it's necessary, but not sufficient. I guess maybe one final point, and that is that for neurologists who are looking at the literature and interpreting the literature in this area. One of the analyses that was included in this manuscript was we assumed a cohort of amyloid-negative, neurodegeneration-negative individuals at age 50 years applied our measured rates and looked at what the prevalence outcomes would be. And by age 90 years, 73% of this cohort would be deceased. And almost 80% would either be deceased or have dementia. But if one looks at the literature, and a lot of papers will discuss cognitively normal people in their mid-late 80s as though this is sort of typical. The reality is that someone who is alive and who is non-demented by their late 80s is anything but typical. These individuals who present with that profile at that age represent only a tiny fraction of their age cohort. These kind of individuals are well outside the norm for their age cohort. And people interpreting the literature or reading the literature really, I think, would be well served to bear this in mind when the concept of typical or normal aging is bandied about. Point well made. It's been a really interesting discussion. That's Professor Clifford Jack on the line from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester in the United States. Many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Neurology, and I've got a feeling we may be talking about this again in the future, but in the meantime, many thanks for your time. Thanks for your interest in the study.